There are lots of things you can spend your tax refund on, but one thing you don't have to spend it on? A new smartphone. Switch to MetroPCS now and get not one, but two free 4G LTE smartphones for brands like Samsung and LG. Plus, you're on T-Mobile's blazing fast nationwide 4G LTE network. Hurry, switch to MetroPCS and get two free smartphones after instant rebate. One heck of a deal, only at MetroPCS. Limited time offer. Sales tax not included in phone price. Coverage and services not available everywhere. See store for details and terms and conditions. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest Greatest story story ever ever told told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got And welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. Happy Thursday. I am one of your hosts, Melissa Palou, and we are thankful that you are here joining us today. Um, My husband, Devin, normally is here as well. Um, We have been having some technical difficulties, and so um, therefore um, you're just stuck with me today. But um, he is really, um, uh, yeah, really apologetic for not being here and is pretty bummed that he'll be missing out on a wonderful show today. Um, so we, we do thank you again for joining us and hope that you really enjoy the show today. We have a great show lined up for you, and we are so excited to bring our guest um, on the air with us today. Um, we have been pretty busy this week. Um, as many of you know, we are launching a uh, Ratio Christie chapter at Winthrop University um, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, 
near our home. And um, for those unfamiliar with Ratio Christi, it um, basically it's, it's a term, it's a, a Latin term for Reasons for Christ. And there are chapters um, on about 130 campuses all across the country. Um, these are student apologetic groups where there is a trained apologist on campus with students um, holding weekly meetings, holding campus-wide events, engaging students on issues of faith and reason, defending the historic Christian faith. Um, and so we've been really blessed to be able to be a part of this organization and Devin as a chapter director and um, myself there just to support him. And we've met some wonderful students. Um, we befriended uh, the local uh, Winthrop Freethinkers Club. Um, we have uh, met quite a few people in that group, and the Freethinkers are, most of them consider themselves to be atheists, but they um, are basically it's open for those who are, you know, have questions or just um, kind of uh, maybe some non-conventional thinking on certain things. Um, they deal with a lot of social issues and that kind of thing, but We've been really blessed to form some good relationships with them um, to really talk about important issues. And um, they hosted or sponsored an event for us this past Tuesday, and we brought in Prem Isaac, who we've actually had on the show before. And Prem um, is a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he did a wonderful talk on the topic of has science buried God. And we were um, – this happened on Tuesday – uh, we were very limited in terms of our, our marketing. Our, we didn't really have a marketing budget, <laughs> and we didn't have a lot of time to market the event and, you know, not being students on campus and trying to be there and, and um, uh, get, you know, get the information out to the students about the event. Um, I, we weren't expecting a huge turnout, but we um, we were blessed to, to see about 150 to 175 people uh, show up for that event, and that was um, it was really amazing. Um, even the students were amazed that, that that many students came to an event that was not for class credit. <laughs> so it was a great time. Prem did a great job breaking down how science has not buried God, um, breaking down the limitations of science, as well as showing that there is scientific evidence that points to um, there being a creator. And so we um, we had a great discussion, great Q&A time. Students asked some wonderful questions, very insightful questions. After the event, the, the conversation kept going. Students were, um, you know, asking questions of Prim and myself and, and Devin and some of the other SES um, or Southern Evangelical Seminary team members. And um, there was just a lot of, of really good dialogue going on, a lot of great relationships formed. So we ask that you keep that in your uh, your thoughts and your prayers, that that would continue to flourish and that um, we would be able to have more events like that on campus to get students really thinking about their faith um, and to really investigate the claims of Christianity if they're not believers. And um, you know, to, for the, the Christian students to be emboldened in their faith and to understand why they believe what they believe and to be um, given tools and resources so that they will be evangelistic and, and go out and be confident as they share their faith with their, their friends um, on campuses, which we know um, are, are, are turning uh, very anti-Christian and liberal. So be, be in prayer for us with Rasha Christi. Um, we also had the opportunity to go last night to the Freethinkers Club meeting on campus. They actually invited us to come in and, and to talk about um, some of these issues. So we had um, a, kind of an open Q&A session with them and answered a lot of their questions, and it went very well. And they were um, pleased that they were able to sit down and dialogue with Christians about these important issues and, and for there not to be, you know, screaming and, and yelling, but just actual rational dialogue and, and openness and um, so they really appreciated that, and they invited us to come back any time that we'd like to. So um, be praying for that. That's um, 
another great opportunity that um, that God uh, has has put in our path. So um, we are, again, blessed to be here tonight with you all and uh, really excited for this show with the busy week that we've had. But um, you definitely are, are going to um, enjoy all the information that you hear today, and we hope that it's useful to you. Um, we'll just go ahead and jump right into our first segment. And we um, – Devin and I actually visited a church last week, which is uh, um, the church uh, is, is where good friends of ours attend, and they um, we had uh, got, talked to the pastor some before we visited the church, and you know we were just really impressed with his love for the Bible, his love for theology, and for truth, and um, we wanted to bring him on just to share that with us all from a pastoral perspective, um, because it's really encouraging when you do find. Uh, men of God in the pulpits of America who do care about sound theology um, and the Bible, which is what we're all about here at Theology Matters. Um, so I wanted to um, share with you about um, Reverend Dave Keene. He um, is actually um, a, the pastor of Park Baptist Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and he graduated with a B.A. in Intellectual History from the University of Pennsylvania. He received his Master's in Divinity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and he is going to um, uh, be here with us and share some wonderful information and uh, more about who he is. And Pastor Dave Kane, are you there? I'm here. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for being with us. I know um, with pastors, uh, their, ten their schedules tend to be pretty busy and hectic, and, and they vary from day to day. And so it really means a lot that you would come on our, our little show here and, and share your wisdom and knowledge with us and with our viewers, or with our listeners, excuse me. <laughs> well, it is, a, it is a pleasure to be here. I mean, anytime you get a chance to talk about uh, the Lord, uh, talk about um, theology and how the world um, should think under the authority of Scripture, uh, under the authority of the Lordship of Christ, it's, it's an honor. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we were, again, Devin and I were just very impressed with um, with your, with the, the, the just the caliber of preaching that came from your pulpit as, as you declared the Word of God last week and just with our conversations with you. And we really thought that our guests would, would really benefit from, you know, hearing from you. And Pastor Dave, um, before we kind of jump into that, tell us more about yourself, um, you know, about maybe about your upbringing. Um, were you brought up in a Christian home? How did you come to know the Lord? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I um, I, re I was raised outside Chicago in, in, a, in a town called Palatine, Illinois. Um, and Palatine in general is not very, there's not a very strong evangelical presence uh, outside mm -hmm. the suburbs of Chicago when I was growing up. So a strong Catholic, strong Lutheran uh, population. Um, now there can be strong evangelicals in, within those denominations. Uh, I went to a more liberal uh, branch uh, of, of the Lutheran church. I uh, went to church mm -hmm. every Sunday, um, you know, was catechized. Did not hear the gospel uh, in church. Mm -hmm. um, I would really, what I, if I was going to sum up what I thought it meant to be a Christian was, you know, you need to be a good person, and if the good outweighs the bad, uh, then you get to make it uh, to heaven. So it was very moralistic. Mm -hmm. um, it was very strong on values and, and character. Uh, I, I was kind of raised by my parents to, to be a good person, to to be generous, to be kind, to be loving. Mm -hmm. um, but wasn't that wasn't really grounded. Uh, in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ, so it was very. This is just right. This is how you how you should live. Treat others as you want to be treated. Kind of like the golden rule. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's coming from scripture, but it wasn't really put in those contexts. Mm -hmm. So, um, I came uh, in contact with a group called Young Life. Um, a football coach just said, "Hey, you would love, want to come to a meeting? There's going to be free food." 
So I said, sure, let's go get some free food. Um, I went and just started being uh, hearing uh, the gospel being preached, hearing more messages specifically, specifically about Jesus Christ. Um, went away for camp in between my sophomore and junior year. I kind of heard the gospel articulated, heard that, you know, that I was a sinner, that I wasn't naturally good, but that I was a sinner. And because of my sin, I actually deserved uh, to go to hell uh, for my sin, my rebellion against God. And that was news for me because uh, I was a good kid. I had straight A's. Um, I played uh, three, three football, football, basketball, and baseball. I was the captain of the baseball team as a sophomore, just very uh, successful, real generous, nice kid. So when they told me that I, I deserved to go to hell because of my sins, I was really kind of shocked. Mm-hmm. Like, who do you mm-hmm. think you are telling me that I deserve to go to hell? Uh, but the more right. and more I heard about the cross, the more and more I, I realized my own sinfulness, uh, I was just I was lost. And I came, um, made a decision at that camp to follow Jesus Christ as my Savior. Um, didn't really know what that meant at that time. I was 16. I was still going to my church. I was just more faithful. I was just attending more regular, listening more. Um, still probably wasn't hearing the gospel at church and probably wasn't even at that time able to identify what I was hearing. Um, but I would still go and be faithful. And, you know, when I was, my parents made the decision for us when we were, um, confirmed it was our choice whether we wanted to continue to go to church or not um at the age of 14 my brother stopped going regularly and i i continued to go with my mom uh, probably because of our, our relationship not just my relationship with the lord um but i went to college university of pennsylvania and kind of was kind of thrust into the collegiate lifestyle and really kind of had one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world so uh, i would um love going to bible study and I would love going to Campus Crusade mm-hmm. for Christ or InterVarsity, to hearing God's word, singing his praises. Really felt that's what that was that's was where I was at home. Uh, but then I would go get drunk or I'd go and do mm-hmm. things uh, just kinda like a carnal uh, Christian uh would. Um well I, after my sophomore junior year things just kinda fell apart for me. Uh football was taken from me. I was playing football in college at the time. I got hurt so I no longer had football. My grades went in the tank. My grandfather influenced in my life, passed away. And I just had to really analyze live in, in a relationship that was unhealthy. I said, you know, I need, I need to really look at my life. And I uh, just heard the gospel again, and I really was convicted that I needed to be discipled. <laughs> I needed to actually start yeah. reading the Bible and figure out what this says. And uh, so I just grabbed a friend and said, hey, would you mind discipling me? And uh, we met together for two years, and he was a strong believer, and we just would read the Word together and talk and pray. And that was really the start of my discipleship. Um you know, so at that point, I knew that I was going to be in ministry. I wanted to share the gospel. I wanted to help people come to come to know Christ. Um, and I didn't really understand, you know, probably theology or the importance of the church. Um, mm-hmm. Probably until I was 20, 25, 26, um, I went to a church that actually taught good theology. <laughs> and it was okay. a breath of fresh air. Um, yeah, you know, there's so many churches in our day uh, who um, they they hold that the Bible is true. Uh, in in theory, but in practice they don't live that out. Uh, so they'll kind of tip their hat to the Bible, and they'll even reference the Bible, but they'll pull verses out of context. And things that they say may not be fully heretical, but they're kind mm-hmm. of you know clothed in a, a philosophy that may be against the scriptures. Um, but it's mm-hmm. hard to dif- differentiate. And when you're in it, it's really you know something's not right, but you can't put your finger on it. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to a church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, pastor there, Mark Dever, and he just took me under his wing, discipled mm-hmm. me, and really helped me understand how 
biblical theology works and how the Mark Dever is one of our one of our heroes yeah. of the faith. So we're uh, jealous that you got to sit under him for so long. That's yeah, he, he's he's the real deal. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I went there just one just testimony to his character. I was just went there on a Wednesday night, and he just reached out his hand and said, "Hey, I'm Mark. Can I take you out to out, out to lunch?" Didn't know who he was. Wow. Didn't know he wrote eight million books and traveled the world speaking. <laughs> uh, he was he was just a pastor who wanted to uh, help a young man uh, get to know the Lord better. Um, right. And I'm grateful for his ministry. So that was so really you, kind you of were in college during you were in I'm sorry you were in college during this time, right? Well, I was in college in Philadelphia, and then when I graduated Philadelphia, okay. I went down to D.C. and uh, okay. I was part of a, um, a church there for a while before I came and, and found Capitol Hill. Okay. So there's just kind of the quick story. I'm married. I got three kids, seven, five, and two. I love being a husband and a dad. Great, great, great Mm -hmm. joy in my life. So. Wow. Yeah, we are. You know, being new parents, we're learning that that journey ourselves of parenthood, and it's really eye opening (laughs) in a lot of ways. It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing and eye opening. So our (laughs) our lives have definitely changed a lot in the last year with our daughter. Um, that's that's amazing, and yeah, like I said, you you mentioned you know during the the college years and the struggle, and that's one of the things you know as, as, that's near and dear to Devin's and my heart is, is young young adults in in that period when they are out of their parents' home and they're coming uh, to uh, the point where they have to live out their faith on their own, and this is the conversation that we've had on campus over and over and over again, and through the years that the last six or seven years of doing various college-type ministries, and it is, it's, they, you know, leaving the parents' roof, having to discover my faith on my own, and realizing that it's not as strong as I thought that it was, and, you know, with the other pressures in life, and, you know, like you said, the partying, and the drinking, and the the relationships, and all these other uh, pressures coming simultaneously, um, as well as, you know, liberal professors, and and those kind of doubts that are, that are, um, that are put there in the mind, and so it's, you know, almost a perfect storm for for a lot of students to fall away, which statistically we we see is a case that happens a lot of times, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I mean, the, that, the, that's the, great. The, the, yeah, the statistics. I don't mean to interrupt you, but the statistics say you know, eighteen to twenty five year olds. There's one percent of them in America have Christian worldview mm-hmm. or have a biblical Absolutely. worldview. The, you mm-hmm. know, you're talking about you know of a campus of seventy thousand, seven thousand at Winthrop. You know, seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, having a biblical mm-hmm. worldview. And that's just kind of scary, and and, and really oh, yeah. the fault can be can be laid right at um, you know churches, pastors preaching, uh, not preaching the full counsel of God. It could be laid at parents not teaching their kids in their own home. You know, discipleship starts mm-hmm. in the home. As you realize, mm-hmm. as your child will grow, I mean, your kids will learn, but they learn by imitation. Mm-hmm. They learn by you. They learn what's happening in your home. So, is Jesus Christ the Lord of the house rather than just the Lord of the church? I mean, He's the Lord of all right. life. In the church or at home, Absolutely. you know, there's been a, a faulty, uh, you know, there's been a breakdown in terms of how the church trains and disciples people, and how mm-hmm. then the, the the parents, mothers and fathers, disciple their children because kids are very unprepared when they go to um, go to a liberal university. Uh, I was mm-hmm. going to University of Pennsylvania, it was just very liberal mm-hmm. campus, um, and I would mm-hmm. confront people that were they had arguments that seemed really logical. Um, you know, they would they would say things, and I was like, "You make a great point," but I wouldn't always know how to defend myself. But I knew the truth. Right. I knew that Jesus Christ, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except through me. So I wasn't mm-hmm. swayed. Um, but there are times mm-hmm. when it's it, it, it's a, it's a great challenge. So I, I praise right. God for what you and Devin want to do to help people be able yeah. to articulate uh, the faith yeah. in a very clear way. Right. 
Well, yeah, well, thank you for that encouragement, and thank you for all that you're doing. Um, yeah, like I said, everything you're saying is just really hitting home for us <laughs> in terms of what we're seeing um, in the culture, not only in campuses, but just in the church in general. How do, how do you see the current climate of evangelicalism in America? Well, it's a great question. It depends on the pocket that you look at. Uh, there are certain pockets mm-hmm. that are off. Um, you know, the if you if you look at what the scripture says to uh, Paul says to Timothy, you know, that there's going to come a day that people will not endure sound teaching. You know, he says tells him in chapter one of Titus or First Timothy one, where he says, "Go to Ephesus, and so you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine." You know, there's these doctrines that are coming out in certain streams of evangelicalism that are full of half truths. Um, which are very scary. Um, they're more, more focused, probably leaning towards propping up man uh, rather than propping up the Lord Jesus Christ. So in certain ways, it's a very scary place in evangelicalism because people, you know, we don't understand our terms anymore. So what does it mean to be right. evangelical? No one really even knows what that means uh, because there's such a it's, just, it's such a wide gap. Um, you know, we want to be for our brothers and sisters and not speak down against them. Um, but, you know, when people are uh, teaching um, things that are, are against the truth, it le- you know, false teachers produce false converts, and false converts give, have false hope. Uh, you know, as a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, I help people die a lot. You know, the pastor, the church I pastor has many members who are 70, 80, 90 years old. So I have to do a lot of funerals. I have to go to a lot of, a lot of uh, hospital rooms and a lot of nursing homes. And uh, people are closing their eyes in death. And it is a scary thing for people to close their eyes in death, believing in a false gospel. This is the reality in what the world we live in. Uh, that being said, although there's a lot of things that are, are um, troublesome in the evangelical world, there's also a lot of hope. I think there's a big movement now, especially among um, the younger generation, the millennials, to really ground their ideas in the scriptures and to kind of return to the the foundation of our faith. So there's a lot of people who don't want the fluff anymore. They don't want the just a story on Sunday. They want the deep biblical right. meat. Right? Give me the word of God. Teach me what the Bible says. We don't want your opinions. We don't want a, a lofty opinion of man. We want the word of God. Uh, so there's some great things uh, going on in the evangelical world in that regard. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that you know when the pendulum swings, it swings far one way or the other. Uh, so I think the, <laughs> yeah. the danger for the, uh, especially the, I'd say the reformed camp, um, is to make sure that we don't go too far to be arrogant in our in our theology, mm-hmm. uh, but to be loving. Right. You know, what Peter says is that, you know, always give a reason for the hope that we have, but we should do so with gentleness uh, and with love, mm-hmm. um, you know, full of mercy. Uh, so I think right. if, if the young evangelicals who love the Bible and want to extol mm-hmm. the Bible – they can't have a theology that is separate from the theology of love and charity and, um, you know, not to win an argument. Uh, you know, knowledge puffs up, but wisdom builds up. So if we would keep that, right. I think that evangelical, um, there's a lot of hope for evangelicalism um, when people really mm-hmm. start to think well. Um, so I'd say it's mixed. It's a mixed bag. Hopefully that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, you're right. It's it's very hard to, to pinpoint and to put your finger on you know, where we are, um, we definitely have a lot of work to do, um, and we definitely um, have drifted in, in a lot of ways. It's interesting uh, you're, you're referring to young evangelicals, and, you know, it's again, it's just what we see over and over talking to young people, and it was with, and the same with me. I didn't want 
I didn't want to be tricked into loving God or tricked into loving the Bible or tricked into coming to church or, um, you know, just to have my emotions fancied or, um, you know, these kind of things. I, I wanted the Bible. I wanted God. I wanted Jesus, you know. And so many times we um, we dumb things down and and then the students don't know how to think. They don't know. They just they don't understand um, what it really means to follow Christ because they're used to just being um, treated as as though they they can't think for themselves or that they're just not that just learning the Bible is just not good enough for them. That they need more. Um, and so we're seeing students that, that love the Lord and love His Word, and that's what they want. You know, they they don't want the games and they don't want the gimmicks. They want they want Jesus. And so, you know, we have to get out of the way. Yeah, amen. And I think that if you look at, um, there are so many, um, you know, philosophies that are empty. Mm -hmm. That Paul says, uh, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. And secularism uh, rules the day in America. Yeah, but secularism is a a false theology, right? It's a false way. It's a false worldview, you know. And we need to educate people to understand that, any way of thinking that does not have Jesus Christ as Lord is an anti-Christ, anti-God theology that needs to be refuted with grace and with love, but with truth. And you, you can't confront that unless you know the truth yourself. So you can't refute, you know, a different wrong doctrine unless you know sound doctrine. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's the job of, of pastors and parents all over our land uh, to really raise up a generation of people who love God's word, um, and who who know how to think, <laughs> because Absolutely, knowing God's yeah. word and loving God's word and thinking well, um, sometimes yeah. can, you know, can be different. Um, so. Yeah, as we've been talking again to students, and not just students, but just with you know, you know, God's opened doors for us to talk with with a number of atheists and unbelievers and those of different faiths for uh, whatever reason, and um, they really, for a lot of them, their observation is that Christians don't know. Anything, and that Christians don't even know their own faith. Even that, when questioned yeah. about certain things, you know, biblically, or uh, you know, that they really don't understand, um, don't understand it, and that is bothersome to people on the outside, <laughs> um, and, and yeah. understandably so. So, so should pastors push their people to really, or encourage their people to to learn theology? And yeah, why does absolutely. theology even matter? Yeah. Well, theology matters, one, because it's the study of God, right? So we want to make sure that we think well uh, about God, uh, because how we think about God uh, will change how we live practically. You know, your your life, your methodology in terms of how you live, your worldview should be driven by your theology, right? You should be, you know, how you view your possessions should be driven, how you view your time should be driven on your theology and your view of God. So if pastors are not teaching their people uh, what God's word says, and having a proper, good, biblical, sound theology, well, they're really preparing their people for disaster. Um, uh, people mm-hmm. must uh, know the scriptures, and they must know how to think and how to think well. Um, you know, so yes, I push my people to, to know theology, and I give opportunities for them to do it. And I teach systematic theology to uh, anybody who wants to, uh, and anyone who's willing to go deeper in the word, I'll spend time with them. Because as a pastor, you know, I can't make you want to study theology. I can't make you to want, want you to study the Bible. But if you want to, I'm going to do whatever I can to stoke the fire um, so that you can really uh, go deeper uh, with the Lord Jesus. 
Right. And that was that was one of the things that really um impressed us is that you actually teach systematic theology at your church and that was like, Whoa, that's that's so unheard of. Um, most people don't understand even what that means and for it to be coming from the pulpit, um, is um absolutely um it's great and, and really really tried to your church. Um you hear you hear this dichotomy that people and the Christians a lot of times use um, that you know theology is good. It's you know you, you need you, you you know or you can't. It's more about practical. You know the practical life application stuff. Yeah. I don't really want to learn theology. I just want to know how to live and how to how to live a better Christian life. Um, but that theology stuff that's just kind of boring and that's not really my thing. So how do we respond to people who say things like that? Well, you have to help them understand and help them show them from the scriptures how your theology will define your life. And you have to walk mm-hmm. them through in terms of how they are living and how they're living and how that shows a theology. It shows a philosophy of life. You know, whether you, how you spend your money, for example, you're showing your view mm-hmm. of theology. You know, where, where, if, you, if you believe what Jesus says, it says, you know, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. You know, you cannot mm-hmm. serve both God and money. You know, you know, you know, end up hating the one and loving the other. So if you, if you don't understand that your theology in terms of giving God, all of your possessions belong to the Lord, well then you're going to say, well I'm going to give my nine, my ten percent, and the rest is mine, right? And I'm going to live mm-hmm. for it, and I'm going to covet my possessions, and these are going to be mine. I'm going to get a nicer, nicer house, nicer car, and all these sorts of things. Well, you can, you can show them how you're viewing your possessions is a theological matter. So I think sometimes as pastors we don't do we haven't done a good job historically helping people realize how the the theology mm-hmm. your theology drives your practice, but it also drives those moments in your life when you're going to go into extreme grief, you know, when you may lose a child or you have cancer. In those moments when when life really kind of kicks you in the face, how are you going to handle it? Right? You don't want seven how tos in that moment, right? You know, seven how-tos right. handle grief. No, you, you, you want a big view of God because if you have a mm-hmm. big, robust view of God, you'll be able to, to walk through this life. Not unscathed because we're called, we're going to be scathed. We're going to be, you know, we're living in a fallen world. We're going to experience difficulty. Um, but we'll, we'll understand what Paul says is that, you know, I do not think that the sufferings of this world are worth comparing to the glories that will be revealed to us, you know, at the revelation of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. You know, so... That grounds us. How do you? How do I deal with that? Well, I deal with that based on my theology. Um, so yeah, theology is very practical, and I think that we just have to do a better job helping people see that theology actually will inform how you live. I mean, Paul says Absolutely. that in Colossians, Colossians three. You know, set your mind on the things of heaven. You know, um, so therefore, you know. Uh, um, if we think about heaven, we think about the gospel, we think about God, it's going to change how we live. So, um, so yeah, I, I would really just try to, you know, I, I pray that happens in my preaching, you know, that over over yeah, a period of time, over a period of years, people will think people will think differently, and their their affections will be different, their desires will be different. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. You actually on on Sunday you you had made that almost the exact same statement that you just made here earlier um that the bigger you view, your view of God the more the, it's the more that your life changes and you know we've seen that in our own lives Devin and, and myself as we have gone through different challenges but our view of our view of God um as we study him because he invites us to study and to learn and you know he's a very intimate God you know he wants us to know about him 
Um, so he invites us. He gave us his word, and he gave us, you know, science and all these other, all these avenues to to know him. And the more that we that we dig and learn, the bigger that he becomes. He doesn't become smaller. And I think that that's that's uh, the fear of some people that you know you'll just kind of have God in this little box, and you know you won't really yeah. reverence him as much. But it's it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> you just you yeah, grow, right. and, and he yeah. So absolutely. Well, so Pastor Dave, we. Yeah, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say, in closing, if you look at the two main principles, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's you know, God says love God with with our minds and how we think, Mm -hmm. uh, so and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the the two great commandments are really uh, will challenge uh, anybody's idea that we shouldn't think well about God. Absolutely. Now, tell us about your your blog and your book, which. I've been following your blog quite a bit, so so tell our, our listeners about that. Yeah, so um, uh, what I do is uh, we have a newsletter that goes out from our church, and so I write an article every week. And really what I'm doing now is that um, one of the things I want to make sure I help our people our parents pastor their children and pastor and lead their families. So uh, the New City mm-hmm. Catechism that was put out by um, uh, uh, Presbyterian New City um Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in New York, Tim Keller's Church, uh, with a bunch of great resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm kind of walking through, kind of doing my own teaching on that text of Scripture for that week. Um, so that's kind of one shorter version I do in the blog. And then, and then I post my sermons. I try to manuscript my sermons just to help me be more thoughtful in what I preach. Um, so then people, if they want to check on things that I say or want me to add clarification, they can go back and, and uh, look at that online. Um, and then the book really was just uh, its just a collection of sermons I preached uh, in the first half mm-hmm. of last year about the book, the, through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and the book is very simple. It's just eight chapters. And when I was going back to my sermons, I saw one common theme uh, in those sermons anyway, is the Lord calls sinners. And after the Lord calls mm-hmm. sinners to himself, he calls us to mission. Uh, so God never mm-hmm. calls us just um, from something. He doesn't save us from something, but he saves us to something. Uh, so if, mm-hmm. you know, we come to Christ, and after we come to Christ, we should be on mission for him uh, to help win others for him. Uh, so I think that too often we get comfortable in our Christian life, and if we don't realize that we're sinners, um, we won't go after sinners, um, and we'll become Absolutely. prideful. So my hope in the book is that people will read it and realize, one, I'm a great sinner, uh, but I have a great Savior. And because I have a great Savior, he's going to take the mess that is my life, and he's going to use it for his glory. Um, So that's that's it. You know, so I pray it's encouragement to uh, those who read it. Absolutely. And I will post the link to your blog where they can uh, follow your blog as well as um, get your book um, in our Facebook page as well as in our chat room that's going on right now. Lots of good conversation going on in there. Um, Pastor Dave, can we uh, thank you so much for being with us, um, for taking time out of your schedule from your family and all that, that you have going on and being the pastor of a church to spend some time here with us on Theology Matters. Well, thank you so much. Theology Matters. woo it does, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, and we uh, we pray as we go into this um, this time of Good Friday and, and during the Resurrection uh, Sunday celebration that um, God would be glorified and that people would would see that that truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that many would come to know the Lord. But we thank you so much for being with us and uh, we shall see you on Sunday. <laughs> amen, amen. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right, God bless you. Thank day. you so much. You too. Bye. Bye.
Well, folks, that was. Uh, I hope that that um, conversation with Pastor Dave Keen really encouraged you, and strengthened you, and um, really motivated you to get into the Bible, to learn theology, to learn as much as we can about God, and to not only learn about Him but just to live for Him in, in every aspect of our lives. And what we're going to do now is we're going to shift into a commercial break, and then we will come back with our second segment and our wonderful guest, Dr. Jay Richards. We'll be right back on the other end of the break. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that 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 doesn't say that salvation is by works. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. back um, with Theology Matters. Thank you so much for tuning in today, everyone, and thank you for your um, your li- uh, listening in to the first segment with Dr. or with this Pastor Dave. This is King. the cosmos. Um, and we are headed into our next segment. We are going to bring a wonderful guest on the line with us, and we are so excited for this show. Um, as many of you know, the new miniseries Cosmos. Um, uh, a Space Time Odyssey with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson um, that's presented by Fox and National Geographic uh, has aired recently, and we have been watching it, Devin and I, and we have had a lot of thoughts about it, <laughs> but we thought that we would bring someone on the lawn with us today who has a lot more expertise than us, who can really break down um, this miniseries and give us some insight and feedback on it. We have with us Dr. Jay Richards, and I will try my best to give you the conv- the condensed version of uh, Dr. Richards' um, bio. He's done so much, and he's doing so many things that it's hard to kind of fit it in. <laughs> but um, Dr. Richards, he's is a senior fellow and fellow and director um, on the at the center. Um, excuse me, at the center on wealth, poverty, and morality at the Discovery Institute. He also is contributing editor of the American. At the at American Enterprise Institute, he's a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and research fellow and director of Acton Media at the Acton Institute. He authored he's authored many books actually, and um, they include Money, Greed, and God, The Privileged Planet, which he also um, was part of a documentary for that, um, and an executive producer, um, God and Evolution, and his newest book uh, is co-authored by James Robinson, and it's titled Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late. Um, he has uh, been covered in publications such as New York Times, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. He's appeared on many national radio and TV programs, including Larry King Live, um, Dr. Richards is the, um, again, executive director of 
um, a producer of several documentaries. He has a BA with, with um, majors in political science and religion and an MDiv, and a theology, a master's in theology and a PhD in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. And even with that being said, I haven't really gotten everything in <laughs> to to share um, about the uh, the work of Dr. Richards and how valuable he is to the Christian faith. Um, Dr. J. Richards, are you there with us? I am. It's great to be with you. It's really, really great to have you here. We are we have been really been looking forward to this. <laughs> and I know that we 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 met at the um apologetics conference. Um I don't know That's if, right. I know you met so many yeah, so you're okay, because I know you met I so remember many you guys because yeah, we're friends on <laughs> Facebook. So yeah, when we yes. met in person. I that's the kind of sort of thing yes. I tend to remember. That's great. Well that's wonderful. Um it was it was really a pleasure meeting you and um hearing you speak at the conference and um just getting learning from you and uh you getting to pick your brain in that. So really <laughs> glad to have you here. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So Doctor Richards, um just on a personal note, tell us about yourself, maybe your your family. Um mm-hmm. how did you how did you really get into um this this whole world of apologetics and all the different things that you're doing in science? Yeah, I'm uh, it's, I'm folks probably gather from my bio. My I'm kind of a shameless generalist, but I'm, prim- I'm primarily trained in, <laughs> in philosophy and theology. I write kind of two tracks. I write on e- really economics and morality or economics and faith and then also on science and faith or just, you know, just the broader question of intelligent design. And so I, you know, those are seem like quite different things, but that's uh, mm-hmm. The kind of benefits of being a philosopher is that you get to be a parasite on the other disciplines in some ways, you know. Right. Uh, so, so there's a so whole question about you know purpose uh, in the universe is is one of my abiding concerns, and you know honestly the way I think I got into this I was working on my PhD mm-hmm. at Princeton Seminary and a guy named Bill Dembski uh, who some um, some of your listeners probably will be familiar yes, with he's a, the kind of leading light. Him, yes. Yeah, on the intelligent design movement. He was working on his Master of Divinity while he was finishing his dissertation for his second Ph.D. So he was there as well. And Bill and I actually started an apologetics seminar. This was in about 1994, 1995. Uh, And I was interested in the fine-tuning argument in physics and had actually written an article on it. And he, turns out, was deeply interested in the design argument, is even writing a dissertation on the design inference. Mm -hmm. And so he and I started this apologetic seminar together. We went to an early conference called Mere Creation in 96. It was held at Biola University where a lot of people that would, within a few years, become kind of well-known in the intelligent design movement were all there. Mm-hmm. And that's honestly kind of how I got drawn in. I met Steve Meyer yeah. and, and folks like that. And then this program mm-hmm. called the Center for Science and Culture started at Discovery Institute about that time. And I took a position that just sort of helped manage it, and I, I moved straight from Princeton, New Jersey with my wife uh, to, mm-hmm. to Discovery Institute in Seattle and have been affiliated uh, with Discovery in some capacity, actually, since 1998, though I've, I've done other things mm-hmm. at different times. And so I was kind of kind of there early on at the beginning of the intelligent design movement. And honestly, it was more than anything just kind of a serendipitous series of introductions and being at the right place at the right time. But you know, none of us could have predicted in 1996 exactly where this thing would go. But uh, it still gets a lot of attention, and it's still as controversial yes. as it has always been. In fact, think of anything that's more controversial than it was at the time. Right. But we have, you know, thank God for, for the Discovery Institute and for all of you guys there who are really fighting for um, for this movement and 
you know, without you guys there, um, we really wouldn't see the, the, this controversy brewing <laughs> in the culture. Um, so I love that, that you all are really all about engaging the culture, um, mm. which is, you know, what we're all about, too. That's so, yeah. so encouraging. Yeah, well, this exciting. is, you know, it's funny because many of us, people may not know this, but Discovery Institute is not a Christian organization. It's not even a religious organization in the sense that we don't have a statement mm-hmm. of faith or anything like that. It's a think tank. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but I'd say many of us at Discovery Institute are, are serious theists, either Orthodox Jews or Evangelicals mm-hmm. or Catholics. Uh, but it's uh, it's funny because we all share this you know, very specific interest in this critique of materialism and building the public case for intelligent design, and we do that even though there's, you know, my colleague David Klinghoffer, for instance, is is an Orthodox Jew, uh, and and yet many fellow Christians actually disagree about about this subject, and we're often mm-hmm. criticized for it. So it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Uh, but you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that this this issue of materialism uh, it cuts mm-hmm. right through the culture, and it cuts even through religious tradition. So you can have someone in your Absolutely. church that. From my perspective, I would say has kind of compromised with the materialist worldview, and they don't realize that. And so very often for me, sometimes the most difficult thing is getting fellow Christians to become conscious of the ways in which materialistic modes of reasoning work their way in, into their own thinking and their own theology. That's sometimes more difficult than, you know, if I'm discussing mm-hmm. this with an atheist, of course they're a materialist. You know, they're an atheist. What should you expect? Right. But I, honestly, kind of getting this clear for fellow Christians is, is sometimes the more difficult battle. Yeah, that's a lot of our work is, is within, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. So we have, you know, the a lot of the apologetics and the, you know, goes on within the church. And so that's, Mm-hmm. That's a kind of our front line of battle, um, as we yeah. as we see so often. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it really they, is. yeah, we're very thankful for you guys. And it was interesting. We actually took a um, Devin and I took a module under Dr. Dembski at Southern Evangelical Seminary uh, mm-hmm. maybe three years ago, maybe four years ago. And it was really neat to hear him talk about you know you know the the start of Discovery Institute and all these things that have happened and all of these battles that have you know, gone on behind the scenes in terms of, you know, just with with in within the world of academia that you, you guys have to deal with, yeah. you know. Um and then not only that, but then even within, you know, the Christendom. So um, I know that you guys get it from every side. <laughs> yeah, we do. It's kind of a, a multi front war unfortunately, but we try our best yeah. and don't always succeed, but we try our best to focus on the evidence and, and the arguments and, right. and not make it personal, which is, you know, that's a constant uh moral and spiritual discipline to keep doing that. Right. I'm sure, yeah. Well, let's let's jump in um to our topic for today. Um mm-hmm. again, uh, we're going to be discussing um Cosmos, um Space Time Odyssey and um uh, this is a a new series which was rebirth um from the original Cosmos series with um with Carl Sagan. What we're going to do is we're going to play a the intro clip um to the new okay. series and then we'll jump in and, and just kind of do some critique um Dr. Richards. So we'll be right back. Sure. This is the Cosmos. A network of 100 billion galaxies. And it's the greatest story science has ever told.
Life on Earth is one of the unsolved mysteries of science. Come with me. Our journey is just beginning. And that was the intro of the Cosmos, the new Cosmos miniseries. Um, Dr. Richards, let's talk about um, Carl Sagan first. Um, again, we know that he uh, was uh, part of the original Cosmos miniseries several years ago. Um, so tell us about who Carl Sagan was. Or of the, of the uh, best-known astronomer. Do you have me I'm muted? sorry, can you start over? I had you <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah, Carl Sagan was a very well-known 20th century American astronomer who taught for many years at Cornell University in, in New York. And as you said, he was the, sort of the host and the creator of the original Cosmos series, which aired on PBS actually back in 1980. And I know for a long time it is definitely one of the most watched series in PBS history. And in fact, you know, I think probably most of it's available on YouTube now, but at the time it, it was really cutting edge. And the thing that I remember, I was a, a kid when it was on and watched it, and I still remember Carl Sagan you know, as a narrator at the, the beginning of, the, uh, of the, the series came on, and he said the mm-hmm. cosmos is all that is or ever was mm-hmm. or ever will be. And, you know, Christians mm-hmm. if you're, that are in liturgical traditions will probably recognize that sounds kind of like the Gloria Patri, you know, as it was in the beginning right. and now and ever shall be, the world without yeah. end. And, of course, Sagan was a literate guy. He knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, he was essentially articulating a, a doctrinal statement of materialism, mm-hmm. that the fundamental reality is is the material cosmos that had always existed. In fact, um, if, if you go see the National Geographic display here in, in Washington, D.C., where I live, I went and visited a couple of weeks ago, and they have a, an amazing display that has, on the very first panel when you walk in the front doors, that statement, the cosmos is all that is or ever was, or ever will be, wow. and they have various kind of artifacts from Carl Sagan because, as it happens, the host of this new series that's now showing on Fox and National Geographic is American astronomer named Neil deGrasse Tyson. And as it happens, Tyson, when he was a kid, got fascinated with astronomy and wrote Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, one Saturday, agreed to meet with Tyson, and so Tyson, who lived in uh, the you know, New York City area, got on a bus and drove up to Cornell and spent a Saturday with Carl Sagan. And so if you see the display in Washington, D.C., they actually have Sagan's uh, day timer, his, you know, his calendar book, opened, and you can see oh. that he had written in Tyson, Neil Tyson on there, and they've got a copy oh, wow. of Tyson's, you know, Sagan's book that he signed for, for Tyson. And so there's an interesting kind of personal connection between these two astronomers. And so very mm-hmm. often... In these episodes, in the new, the new Cosmos series, Tyson will tell some story, either about Sagan or about his interactions with Sagan, which I think adds a kind of interesting human element. But it, it, it is funny because if you're paying attention, you realize that this mm-hmm. isn't just a sort of plain old uh, you know, science documentary series. I mean, there's very much, I think, an attempt 
to create a type of spirituality. And so just like you know, mm. Christians and religious people will often revere icons or various relics of their faith, you know, um, there, there's, a, there's a sense in which they're doing that with, with relics of, of, of Carl Sagan. And so I think it's something that it, it's not all that hard to see once you realize it, but if you don't realize it, okay. it, it might slip. That this isn't just science, but it's also a type of spirituality. Wow. Yeah, what what type of impact did Carl Sagan have on the culture, would you say? Well, I, I mean, he was almost certainly the best-known by far, the best-known American astronomer. He was, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but he was on Phil Donahue, who was the sort of Oprah Winfrey of the early 1980s and late 1970s, yes. dozens of times. <laughs> he was one of these sort of cultural icons. He was... A very popular author, movies like uh, Contact uh, that were based on writings by Carl Sagan, and so he was in many ways as influential as Richard Dawkins is today. Okay, sorry about that, Dr. Richards. We're having some technical issues. Go ahead and proceed. Oh, no trouble. Was that um, was that from the original uh, Sagan Cosmos series or from the current one? That was I'd from heard. the. Yeah, that sounds like it was from the current one. I was trying to. Yeah, it kind of just popped in there. It may oh, have been okay. From the older one though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we yeah have I was, was going to say so. that. Yeah, it dropped in just like aliens from another star system, yeah. I guess. And, you know, which is actually one of the things Sagan was very known for. He was a, a strong advocate for uh, extraterrestrial intelligent life, and for those listeners who've seen Contact with Jodie Foster, um, it was made back in the 1990s, I think. That that movie's based on a novel called Contact by Carl Sagan, and it's essentially a story mm. of a NASA scientist who, you know, uh, has an encounter with extraterrestrial intelligent life. And Sagan, just just like the current series, which I think weaves in a kind of materialistic spirituality with science storytelling, Sagan did the same thing. He was a prominent. Uh, sort of activist and participant in what at the time was called the humanist movement that's kind of gone out of out of favor now. But he was, mm-hmm. you know, was both an atheist, but also recognized that atheism was, you know, sort of dry ground for the human soul. And so he did everything he could to try to infuse his scientific storytelling and his teaching with a kind of spiritual grandeur. And you saw that certainly mm-hmm. in the original Cosmos series because. It's my view that, as Augustine said, everyone has a sort of God-shaped void in their heart. And if it's not filled by God, it's filled by something else. And, you know, you've only got so many surrogate spiritualities. I mean, if it's not going to be the God of the universe, it's going to be the state or the individual or nature. And anyway, it's the Mm -hmm. natural world, this grand, you know, cosmos that we are part of. That's kind of the best candidate, you know. I mean, making myself Mm -hmm. God, that's just... To me, it's never seemed very plausible. And we see states, you know, uh, government systems come and go and collapse. Uh, Nature, on the other hand, it's kind of the next best thing. And so very often I Mm -hmm. think that what makes these series so popular and what makes them have such cultural staying power is that they try to invest the science with a kind of spiritual significance. Right, which is, uh, you know, that's 
effective, you know, in terms of getting people to really to tune in to, and to get the message that they're trying to get across. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, you saw that in the first one. What we have now that Carl Sagan didn't have in 1980 is really spectacular computer-generated animation. And so in mm. as, as well as actually just new actual astronomical footage. So in, in the new series, which incidentally it broadcasts, First on Sunday nights, at, uh, it's, I know it's 9 p.m. on on the East Coast, and I'm assuming it's about mm-hmm. eight or nine uh, in in all the time zones. And then on Monday nights on the National Geographic Channel in the evenings, um, they are able to use just absolutely spectacular animation. Whether you're dealing with galaxies or stars or planets or you know mm-hmm. subatomic particles or whatever, they also have available, of course, these spectacular images of galaxies and stars and nebulae from various space telescopes that we have available. And so the, the visual imagery in in this new Cosmos series is just absolutely really spectacular in many yeah. ways. Yeah, it's sort of cutting oh. edge. And so I think that makes it a, you know, it, it makes it a very powerful teaching tool, but unfortunately it also makes it a very effective propaganda tool. And so I think mm-hmm. that's why it's important that on shows like this we actually talk about it a little bit. Yeah, and look at the content. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. Who, is, who is Neil deGrasse Tyson? We talked about him just a little bit briefly. Who, who is he, and what is his kind of, would you say, is like his worldview? Yeah, he's also a, a fairly prominent American astronomer, and he's an accomplished astronomer. I mean, people, if you, were, you wouldn't necessarily, his name wouldn't necessarily come up on, you know, astronomers that have made the top ten scientific discoveries of the last 20 years, but he's a well-known mm-hmm. uh, astronomer that's also a very good science popularizer. So, in other words, he's not just an, an academic that's publishing articles in, you know, the Astrophysical Journal and, and academic journals that other astronomers would read, but he's very good at translating uh, the science and astronomy for a general audience, and so that's that's what makes him good. He's he's good on camera. He is in in many ways the sort of protege of of Carl Sagan, mm-hmm. and so it makes sense that they'd use him. And he's been on actually many PBS uh, documentaries yeah. and programs for years, and in fact, I think works at the Hayden Planetarium uh, in in New York City. And so he is a, a, a I think the sort of consummate popularizer of this stuff. Though having said that, the Cosmo series. Despite the name, it doesn't just talk about the universe at large. Throughout the series, they talk about the history of life, the origin of life, evolution of life, all the kinds of things that you'd sort of expect in a a sweeping 13-week treatment of the cosmos as a whole with, you know, the expected kind of level of generality and storytelling and honestly just those stories that, that we've come to expect as well. Right. Um, let's let's. What, what would you say is the aim of the show? I think the um, aim of the show is probably twofold. One is to. Um, it's honestly, I just said in one of my first pieces at Evolution News and Views, which is the Discovery Institute blog that deals with these things, called it a pie mm-hmm. into materialism and to science. So very often, it's it's designed to just talk about the sort of glorious discoveries and exploits of science. And I don't think by itself there's anything wrong with that. The problem is, is that it's also essentially, uh, you know, I, I joke, it's a kind of a catechism for materialism. I mean, it, it's essentially mm-hmm. an attempt to teach kids uh, packaged with really nifty scientific stuff this other thing mm-hmm. that's separate from science called scientific materialism, which you got quite explicitly mm-hmm. in the original Cosmos series, and then, and you get uh, in virtually every episode of this new series. So there's a 13 uh, total episodes, one hour each, and I think we've just 
just gone through six of those episodes so far. So it's really mm-hmm. kind of a twofold goal. It's both to glorify science, to teach science. I'm sure producers are hoping that this will be used in, in you know, junior high and high school classes for years and years after mm-hmm. afterwards, but also an attempt, I think, to, to teach kids materialism so that they will associate mm-hmm. amazing scientific discoveries and imagery with this philosophical and theological idea that the materi- material reality is the fundamental reality and that all this business about God and purpose and design in the universe is just a kind of nonsense of a bygone era. Mm-hmm. And so what happens mm-hmm. in every one of these episodes is you get weaved into it, both you know some basic science, but also inevitably a historical narrative that is designed to set up what you know is sort of simplistically called the warfare thesis of science and religion and especially science and christianity and that's just the idea that you know christianity early on was the enemy of science it it tormented (laughs) and persecuted and martyred early scientists but you know it's the emergence of modern science science finally broke off the obscurantist shackles of of christianity and religion and, and now has left that behind and so you constantly get this historical narrative of a warfare between Christianity and science, and they keep returning to it in every episode. And in fact, it's so bad that even some people over on the other side of these debates have actually been criticizing the series for just doing just really bad science. And I I wrote about it actually in the very first episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's look, let's let's talk about the first episode. Um, So the first episode was uh, titled Standing Up in the Milky Way, and there was a controversy. Mm-hmm. So talk, talk about that and about your article and, and those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if people are interested, incidentally, most of the uh, at evolutionnews.org, we've got at least one article a week and sometimes two or three by my colleagues Casey Luskin, David Klinghoffer, uh, and, and me. And so that, that first episode I found fascinating because – as you said, it was supposed to be about sort of the Milky Way, and there was some kind of very interesting science stuff there. But I would say fully a third of this first episode was devoted to a guy named Giordano Bruno. And I'm guessing that your listeners that don't follow this stuff maybe have never even heard of this guy. You know, who's Giordano Bruno exactly, you know? Well, it turns out he is kind of a, a fair, you know, fairly obscure um, defrocked Dominican uh, the, the Dominicans were a religious order, a uh, Catholic religious order, and he was removed as a Dominican because he was teaching heretical doctrines. He denied the virgin birth. He denied the resurrection. He denied the Trinity. He was teaching all sorts of, uh, of heretical things. He was a pantheist. and so. Um, but he happened to also pick up this idea that had been proposed by Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus is the guy that proposed in 1543 that the, the Earth was a planet that, that rotated around the sun with the other planets as opposed to being the you know, sort of stationary center of the cosmos. Well, the, the story as you get it in this first episode of Cosmos is that, uh, you know, essentially Bruno was a, a forward-thinking guy. The church got a hold of him. He was originally in Rome, and then he left and went to Calvin's Geneva, and they didn't like him there. He went to Oxford. They didn't like him there. He ended up back in Rome and ended up getting burned at the stake for his scientific views. And that's very much the impression that almost any viewer is going to get. And they have this somewhat really hokey kind of cartoon animation mm-hmm. showing these 
you know, evil, uh, sort of recognizable priest-looking figures marching and burning Bruno at the stake. And so you get the impression, if you watch this, that, okay, so Christianity essentially martyred one of the very first scientists of the modern period. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, though, Tyson then says, well, you know, of course, Bruno was just kind of, was kind of a lucky guess, and he wasn't really a scientist. Well, it, okay, but if he wasn't a scientist, why did we spend a third of this episode on him? Well, the reason we spent a third <laughs> of the episode is because they needed a martyr to set up the story. Remember, if the, the narrative is that Christianity has been the enemy of science, and it's only with the sort of you know, the casting of the shackles away from religion and Christianity that science has prospered, you've got to have a martyr, and Bruno is the only one that there was, because if you look at people like Copernicus, who, he, was a, he was actually a, a, a cleric in the Catholic Church. He died peacefully in his mm-hmm. bed. Galileo, who's a Copernican, of course, kind of ended up in conflict with the Vatican, but turns out he, he died peacefully in his home under house arrest, living on a church pension, so he's not a martyr. So we've got to pick this obscure guy, Giordano Bruno, because he's the only one that actually got burned at the stake. The problem is the reason he got burned at the stake had absolutely nothing to do with his Copernican views. It had to do with his heretical views, and he would have gotten burned at the stake almost anywhere he would have been in Europe. I mean, that's not a good thing. That's just the kind of thing that happened in Europe at the time. And so this is so bad that, you know, I say in my article at Evolution News that if the producers had just gone to the Wikipedia page on Bruno, they would have gotten the story more or less right. And that shows you how strident and complete the kind of materialistic bias of the series is that they couldn't even get this basic history about this one figure right and so as a result the that initial episode has been widely panned kind of across the spectrum even from people Mm -hmm. uh, like the national center center for science education which is of course always a critic of intelligent design so i think that tells us something about the underlying bias of the series Mm -hmm. yeah interesting huh (laughs) um that uh, that's the the route that they took and that people caught on to it though you know (laughs) they they, did yeah and that's uh, Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing is that the series, I don't know exactly what the budget is, but it was a very expensive series to produce. And unlike Mm -hmm. other series, like, you know, Sagan's Cosmos series is on PBS, this is co-produced and co-broadcast by Fox and National Geographic. And so it's showing prime time Mm -hmm. on Sunday nights on Fox. And so it's actually a really Mm -hmm. big deal. That's, you know, unlike a kind of science cable channel or something. In fact, I think it's showing on right. something like seven or eight different channels between all the National Geographic and Fox uh, channels wow. that there are on cable. And so it really is a big deal, especially right at the beginning. It was getting a whole lot of publicity. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I, I think partly because of this kind of cranky metaphysical materialism, uh, the the ratings have not been that great. In fact, they've continued to plummet. If it were just being broadcast Mm -hmm. on National Geographic, that's not a big deal. But when you're up in the spotlight on primetime on Fox on Sunday night, you know, yeah, it ends up being kind of disappointing. Right. Were there any other things on, on episode one that really stood out to you in particular? Well, honestly, I mean, I think there, it was actually some very interesting stuff about the science, unfortunately, but it was in, in many ways sort of maddening because, um, you know, there was such an opportunity to tell, for instance, even the story about Copernicus, which is a great story mm-hmm. about this, 
you know, this uh, Christian cleric who works out the mathematics. He didn't get everything right, but he was able to conceive of this idea that the earth is, you know, for all intents and purposes, it looks like it's perfectly still and everything's moving around it. But he was able to, to realize that, in fact, you know, I can explain the motions of the heavenly bodies if I imagine the earth is rotating on its axis and then revolving around the sun with the planets. It's an amazing intellectual insight that deserved detailed treatment because they crammed so much of the emphasis on Giordano Bruno. Copernicus gets nary a mention in this first episode. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, I keep thinking, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, can we can we get back to Copernicus and some of the guys that actually did stuff? <laughs> you know, and I'm, you know, the problem is Copernicus. It's kind of hard to make the kind of you know the warfare between science and religion case with him because first of all he was a cleric right so he wasn't some right. uh, skeptic free thinker uh he died peacefully right. in his bed so he wasn't persecuted and you know so he doesn't fit right. the narrative and so these key figures in the history of science end up in in this case either getting short shrift or they is in the case of Newton in a later episode get really kind of misrepresented right absolutely well, yeah, it's, it's really, like you said, a, a definitely a missed opportunity to really um, encourage some, some dialogue and to bring um, attention to the real Copernicus. <laughs> and, and the, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because the the, the reality is even um, if, if you look at the history of science, and, in fact, there's a terrific book by a guy named Rodney Stark called For the Glory of God where he uh, talks about the religious views of the founders of, of early modern science in in this chart, in this book. He actually lays it out, and he, he, he uses this taxonomy. He says, okay, let's, we're going to have devout, uh, what he calls conventional, and then skeptical. And so that um, essentially shows that every, virtually every single one of the founders of the subdisciplines of modern science were either devout Christians or conventional Christians, with about two exceptions. And so that's what's extraordinary about it. So he doesn't make Galileo a devout Christian. He, he count, uh, Stark counts him um, as a conventional Christian. He's a conventional Catholic, but if you read his writings, it's clear he was thinking in generally Christian and theistic terms. And that was true of virtually all the early modern scientists. And what Stark points out, and many historians of science know, is that there's a reason for this. There's a reason that science in its modern form emerged in a Christian and theistic milieu, and it's because Christianity is conducive to the ideas that science needs. If you're a Christian, you believe the world is created by a good and rational God. It's orderly. It's not the sort of you know uh, stage in which all these different capricious gods are fighting things out. You believe human beings are made in the image of that rational God, and so we have the capacity to discover the rational order of the universe, and that's the reason you've had science emerge in in Europe and not anywhere else. That's part of the history of science. That's part of the story of science. But um, because of the fact that the cosmos is committed to this other narrative, it's just simply unable to point out those fairly well-known historical facts. Right, because of that that commitment, absolutely. Now, in episode two, um, it was titled "Some of the Things That Molecules Do," um, mm-hmm. and this really pushed the naturalistic account of origins and evolution. Now, what are, yes. what are some of the problems um, 
with evolution and uh, that were presented during that that portion. And does ID do a better job of, of uh, answering those uh, those things? Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, Tyson was honest in this episode, and he admitted that nobody knows how life got started. So it's yeah, and it is important mm-hmm. that we distinguish yeah. the question about the origin of life, right? Which is sometimes called right. <laughs> uh, you know that that transition from chemistry to biology with the the development or evolution of life after you get the first reproducing molecule. But nevertheless, they get the you know the kind of stereotypical warm wet pond of Darwin's fertile imagination in which you have sort of something happen. But it, what's funny is that the the this episode actually goes on to talk about the transforming power of what Tyson calls mindless evolution or unguided evolution. So for those fellow Christians that say, well, Charles Darwin, he didn't really propose a, you know, a materialistic view of evolution. He was just kind of giving a natural mechanism that could be guided by God. Well, Tyson made perfectly clear what virtually any biology textbook will tell you, which is that Darwin's theory of biological evolution is a robustly materialistic and blind and purposeless theory. Darwin didn't just say, okay, organisms sort of developed over a long period of time, then maybe they were guided by God. He intended to propose a materialistic substitute for the designing intelligence of uh, of God. And Tyson makes that clear in this episode, and so he's able to actually talk about blind and mindless evolution. Of course, the, the stories that he to- tells there are like these stories always go. Unfortunately, they either it's a perfectly good example, such as um, the variations that you get with uh, breeding of animals, which is was the story that Darwin uses in natural in uh, the Origin of Species. It's the example that Tyson uses. We of course know that human beings can take a population of sheep or cattle or cows or dogs or whatever, uh, and over time by selectively breeding them, we can can select for particular traits. And so we by doing that, we have this amazing variety of dogs. The problem is is that you eventually reach a natural limit in which you can't even really get beyond the species barrier. So if you look at domestic dogs, a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, they're quite different. They're still the same species, and you can, you know, you can mess with them all you want. They're still going to stay dogs, and that's the problem that Darwin had. How do you account – how do you use this – type of mechanism and account for how you could actually get species because the book that darwin wrote in 1859 was called the origin of species uh it wasn't you know how you get variation by selective breeding the other problem of course is that when we're dealing with selective breeding of of dogs or animals or whatever you want to want to mention you're dealing with intelligent design human beings uh in intelligently select artificially select for particular mm-hmm. traits and so uh, mm-hmm. there, it doesn't follow from that that natural selection this blind process uh, is going to be able to do even as much as artificial selection let alone that it's going to be able to jump the species barrier and create completely new body plans or or organs or or species and and that's the difficulty that Darwin had and here we are you know 170 or more years later and we're still getting the same basic illustration Tyson starts with selective breeding of human beings and animals and wolves and dogs and then immediately makes this grand extrapolation to the evolution of all life when all he's really shown is that Darwin's theory might be able to account for the survival of the fittest within a population, but he has hardly explained the arrival of the fittest, as it's often put. Right. 
Yeah, that's a great breakdown of, of the episode. And I just want to make um, the listeners aware that we actually will be taking calls shortly for Dr. Richards. So I know you guys have some great questions for Dr. Richards. Um, uh, you can give us a call at 760-542-3907, the number on your screen. So you guys can go ahead and start calling in, and we will dive some more into Cosmos as well. Um, Dr. Richards, we are actually going to um, take a quick break. Um, we're going to uh, play a clip um, from the from the series, and uh, we will uh, get your thoughts on it when we come back. Great. Uh, I want to do it just a fast tirade on stupid design, and uh, this will be fast. Uh, look at all the things that just want to kill us, okay? Uh, most planet orbits are unstable. Uh, star formation is completely inefficient. Most places in the universe will kill life instantly. Instantly. The people who say, oh, the forces of nature are just right for life. Excuse me, <laughs> just look at the volume of the universe where you can't live. You will die instantly. That is not, that's, not, that's not what I call the Garden of Eden, all right? Uh, uh, galaxy orbits that we orbit once every couple hundred million years, you're bound to come close to a supernova that will wipe out your ozone layer and kill everybody on the surface who doesn't otherwise have dark skin because your high-energy rays will give you skin cancer. Um, we're on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Gone is this beautiful spiral that we have. And, of course, we're on a one-way expanding universe as we wind down to oblivion, as the temperature of the universe asymptotically pro approaches absolute zero. That's the universe. Then Earth, volcanoes, a tsunami just killed, uh, you know, I think that number's higher, up 200,000 people, floods, tornadoes. None of this is any sign that there's a benevolent anything out there. And this 90% is, should be 99%, as was earlier noted. That's a... Um, of all life that has ever lived is now extinct. Intersolar system is a shooting gallery, comets, uh, uh, asteroids, duck. Um, and look how long it took to make multicellular life. Not from the beginning of the Earth. Life happened quickly, but not multicellular life. Uh, you needed your cyanobacteria to sort of crank on the oxygen, get the oxygen budget going. Then you could have sort of, uh, that's sort of rocket fuel for multicellular creatures. But that took three and a half billion years. That's hardly an efficient plan with us in mind. Um, and in human beings, this is like the most tragic of them. I don't even include here the expression of free will where people want to kill each other. I'm talking about nature killing us without the help of human beings. Aggressive childhood leukemia, hemophilia, all of this, all of this. And we so much praise about the human eye, but anyone who's seen the full breadth of the electromagnetic spectrum will recognize how blind we are. Okay, and part of that blindness means we can't see, we, we can't detect magnetic fields, ionizing radiation, radon. We are like sitting ducks for, for ionizing radiation. Um, we have to eat constantly because we're warm-blooded. Crocodile eat a chicken a month, it's fine, okay? So we're always looking for food. These gases at the bottom, you can't smell them, taste them, you breathe them in, you're dead, okay? So I'm almost done. I'm sorry. I'm taking up your time here. So, so, and with the burst effects, most are unknown. Look at this. Others, we, it's like abuse and infection and stuff that human beings have something to do with. Here's, we have no idea. Oops, I pushed a button by accident. Sorry. No idea. No idea. And, you know, and birth defects are tragic. They're tragic, particularly if they happen to the family afflicted by it. And you just look at the images of these aborted feces because, um, uh, fetuses because of the, and most of these are stillborn. Others are born, you know, born with a heart outside the body. And so 
This is all simply stupid design. And the problem is, if you look for what is intelligent. Okay, I think we got the, the idea there. That's actually not from the Cosmos um, series, but that is a clip of Dr. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson basically mocking intelligent design, and it's not something that we typically hear uh, or see on PBS from him. Um, so why do you think that that is, Dr. Richards? Wow, that's I, I'm wondering. I'm assuming this is some kind of private forum, and you know, it's, it yes. doesn't surprise me. I know enough about Tyson that it doesn't surprise me. But I do think you get the kind of measure of the man and his his basic attitude there. I mean, he's clearly, uh, it, you know, this it wasn't a, a careful analytic critique of intelligent design or of theism or Christianity. It was essentially a uh, a spleen venting a kind of tirade mm-hmm. and i think you know his point it's not clear what his point is i think this is the old argument that well there's things that look bad to us so it can't be intelligently designed well, of course that doesn't follow first of all the argument for intelligent design by itself doesn't claim that the, the, the design that we see is benevolent. Now, as a Christian, I believe that ultimately, if God's the designer, that uh, there is a benevolent purpose behind it. But, you know, the guillotine, for instance, is not benevolent, but we can still tell by its features that it's intelligently designed. In the same way, uh, if the universe at, at its sort of fundamental level, the fundamental constants are very exquisitely fine-tuned, for complex life in the sense that if they were even slightly different, no type of life would be possible. Well, that's good evidence, at least prima facie evidence of intelligent design. So the fact that the universe at large may be generally hostile to life, still at the the macro macro level, it had to be very precisely fine-tuned for complex life. Now, Tyson also, I notice he, he presupposes certain highly tangentious theological assumptions. For instance, he says, well, this is a very inefficient way to do things. Well, of course, inefficiency implies, I mean, he's essentially making a theological point that if there were a God, God wouldn't do it this way. Well, sorry, Dr. Tyson, if there's a God, God doesn't have limited resources. And so the very concept of efficiency uh, is meaningless. If God is not using limited resources, then he can do it however he wants, because it's not like he's going to run out of energy. And so that's the very concept of efficiency implies a scarcity of resources. And so if Tyson, you know, very often scientists do this that are not all that well-trained philosophically or theologically, they'll just presuppose a highly tangentious theological assumption that no actual theist would use. And so, you know, if, if Tyson or someone wants to have a theological dispute, that's great, but I think that theological assumptions ought to be surfaced. Um, the reality is, you know, just to, to pick one other example that he uses, about eyes. I mean, there's famous uh, supposed so-called dysteleological arguments about mammalian eyes, that it's uh, substandard in its design. But in fact, if you look at the, the arguments in detail, it turns out there are very specific functional requirements for why the mammalian eye is, is wired the way it is. And then he says, well, we're blind to most of the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, and it, no, actually, it depends, for all we know, and I said what I suspect, that the eye is very good for doing what we need it to do. I don't say that, uh, for instance, I'm, my design is flawed because I can't fly, because I suspect that the human design, that's not one of its proper ends, and perhaps one of the proper ends of the human eye is not to see the radio part of the spectrum, and for all we know, there'd be severe 
problems if we were constantly seeing all the the radio parts of the spectrum. And so just, you know, I mean, because Tyson, it's literally take an hour and a half to respond to every one of his details, but I think it's important to realize Mm -hmm. that he's essentially submerging very controversial theological assumptions uh, rather than saying, okay, what's the strongest manifestation of the argument for intelligent design on the other side and then respond to that. He's instead creating a straw man of his own design and responding to it. Wow. Yeah, that was, um, again, that was very telling and provocative, but um, that's, you know, that's his perspective. Um, but yeah, again, absolutely. And I mean, it does, <laughs> yeah, it's important. You wouldn't, you don't see him in that mode uh, in the Cosmos series. And, I th- you know, there's an obvious reason because uh, it's, it's like Richard Dawkins. I, I think that uh, right. atheists like that with that tone, they actually probably do themselves a disservice. What you want <laughs> is someone that's sort of exciting and excited and compelling. And that's the type mm-hmm. of Tyson, that's the, the perspective you get of him if you watch him in the series. Yeah, it's funny, I... Um I frequent a um a meeting uh, it's a philosophy club but it's a majority they're majority atheists some are uh unitarians and that kind of thing but um they really really admire um uh, Tyson and one of the things that they really like about him is that he is mild um mm-hmm. they're they're very um you know live and let live kind of let's all get along but Christians are still stupid you know <laughs> um but <laughs> yeah, they that's appreciate right. that let's he's all very get along. mild yeah. That's right, and so I mean, and, and this is how Sega normally came off too. And, and my view is that we should, you know, focus on the evidence and focus on the arguments. And I think you know, just focusing on the Cosmo series, in which I take it, you know, this is very well designed and well edited. Where this is the kind of they're putting the the best foot forward mm-hmm. here, and yet even mm-hmm. their best foot forward doesn't get really basic historical facts right. That. I mean, they can't even arise to the level of accuracy of Wikipedia on many of these things. Right. That's very sad. Um, now, in Episode 3, um, it's uh, it was titled, When Knowledge Conquered Fear. Um, so as scientific discoveries grow, um, does that actually do away with the need for God? Well, that's certainly the impression that they want to give you in this series. And the reason that, that you know they give that impression is because they – uh, make it sound like, okay, ancient peoples up until just a few hundred years ago, sort of everything that happened in the night sky or in nature, they attributed to this direct action of God, you know, Zeus with lightning mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Well, that's certainly true of some religions, but it's, not, it's simply not true of Western history for the last several thousand years. I mean, even if you look in the New Testament, for instance, just look in the Gospels at Jesus' miracles. Some of his miracles, he, you know, he heals people that are possessed by demons, but not everything that people are afflicted with <laughs> is explained in terms right. of you know, divine action or demonic action. Sometimes it's simply a disease or a sickness or inability to see. And so you know, certainly, at least in uh, J- Jewish and Christian history, there has, for all, all the way back there's been a distinction between perfectly recognizable natural causes but then also uh, openness to the possibility that God could sometimes act directly in the, the physical world and that demonic forces could do that sometimes. And so this whole myth that, you know, until recently everyone was attributing everything that happened in nature to the actions of a spiritual being is just that. It's a myth. I mean, maybe there have been some you know, pagan polytheistic religions that held that, but it certainly isn't true about Western history. 
Um, and so mm-hmm. what we've discovered essentially in, in you know, early modern and modern science is we've gotten much more detailed understanding about natural causes themselves. So, for instance, you know, people knew perfectly well in Jesus' time, you know, for instance, that virgins didn't normally have, give birth to children or that people didn't mm-hmm. normally rise from the dead. You know, they, they, they actually had a fairly exquisite understanding 2,000 years ago of the basic movements of the, the, the planets and the stars across the sky, but they didn't have an exquisite mathematic understanding of that that allowed them to make predictions. And in many ways, that's really what's happened in the last few hundred years. We had the foundation, in, at least in the West, for centuries, this conviction that nature was rational, that it was discoverable, that, that we could unlock its secrets. Uh, and what we've gotten in the last few centuries is just a much more detailed and kind of mathematical understanding of that. And so science, at it its best, is just disclosing the secrets of the natural world that God has created. That's exactly how... Galileo and Copernicus and Newton saw it. They just thought they were essentially uncovering God's handiwork in the world that he's Mm -hmm. created. That's a great thing. But, you know, this idea that as, you know, as uh, science has advanced, somehow the realities of the faith and and Christianity and purposes have all gone by the wayside. No, that, that might be how it looks if you're interpreting science in a materialistic way. But I think, if anything, probably never been a better time to be a theist than in the early 21st century because of key scientific evidences that I think say more than anything that Sagan's idea that the cosmos was all that is or ever was or ever will be can't possibly be true. Just you know, one example of that would simply be that we know the universe had a beginning. You know, 150 years ago at the time of Darwin, People could assume that the material universe was eternal, that it just always existed. Of course, in the 20th century, we discovered that, no, in fact, the universe has an age. It came into existence in the finite past. That was well known even when Sagan you know, did his series and made that famous statement in 1980. We know the universe hasn't always been here. And so it mm-hmm. just simply from the evidence itself, I think, emerges this question of where it came from, what what caused it to come into existence. And that's something that, mm-hmm. you know, for all the fancy kind of materialistic storytelling is still a basic fact of modern science with which we have to deal. Mm, absolutely. Um, and and um, along those lines, um, I have a question that was submitted for you, Dr. Richards, here. Mm-hmm. Um, how seriously does uh, Neil take the Christian origins of modern science? You know, I honestly don't know. I haven't been able to find whether he even realizes this and because, mm. you know, some of the historical bloopers, unfortunately, in this series, uh, like the one with Bruno, I realize. So Tyson himself, who's a narrator and, you know, has a production capacity, and Dryan, who is uh, Carl Sagan's uh, uh, widow, who helped work on this series, Seth MacFarlane, who's the executive producer, and all the other scriptwriters – all these historical bloopers had to get through all of these people, right? And no mm-hmm. one caught it, right. which makes me think that they're just simply unfamiliar with some of the most basic work in the history and philosophy of science, which, you know, it's fairly common knowledge, for instance, this late date, that Christian concepts played a role in the origins of modern science. But I can't tell that either they know it and they're covering it up or they're simply ignorant of it, which I think they're probably ignorant of it. And say that because of the mm-hmm. treatment of, of Newton, uh, Isaac Newton, of course, who, you know, probably 
arguably one of the greatest scientists of all time, uh, right in the middle of his famous scientific work, the Principia, actually makes an argument for intelligent design, really makes an argument for the existence of God based upon the arrangement of the solar system. But if you watch the Cosmos episode, I think it's the third episode, that talks about Newton, mm-hmm. they argued that his uh, religious ideas, yeah, he believed in God and he was kind of fixated on Bible prophecy and stuff, but it never went anywhere and it was completely separate from his science. Well, you would never realize that, in fact, his theological ideas were, you know, sewn in closely with his most scientific work. And that's something that, you know, it's actually all you have to do is study Newton carefully and you're going to know that. And so mm-hmm. I just honestly think that the, the producers and the writers on this documentary series are so blinded by their materialistic biases that they end up not seeing these things that are, you know, right there for the scene for anybody that's interested. Right. Great. And again, everyone, our phone lines are open seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. If you have a question for Dr. Richards, Dr. Richards, what were some of the other things that jumped out to you um, from the series that um, you'd like to respond to? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think that the the historical details are the are the thing that um, is in many ways the the most disturbing. You know, the the Newton episode because I you know, honestly know a lot about Newton, so I was looking to see how they would treat him. And my colleague, David Klinghoffer, in fact, I think at Discovery at evolutionnews.org, I think we maybe had three articles on that that third episode Mm -hmm. on Newton. But um, uh, my colleague, David Klinghoffer, actually has a little piece where he quotes the famous British economist, John Maynard Keynes, who people may not know, Keynes actually owned, uh, purchased Newton's papers, and so he was very familiar with Newton's work, mm. and, and and this is what Keynes said about Newton, and remember, John Maynard Keynes was not any kind of Christian. Uh, he said that Newton regarded the universe as a cryptogram set by the Almighty. Uh, in other words, it was a certain sort of code, a secret code, and uh, as Keynes said, by pure thought, by concentration of, of mind, the riddle Newton believed would be revealed to the initiate. Well, that's exactly what Newton thought. It was perfectly in keeping with the other founders of modern science. Keynes knew this, even though he certainly wasn't a, a, a theist so far as I know. And so to miss this, just most basic element uh, of the history of science, and in fact to gloss over it, I think it's it does a, a serious disservice to the, the cause of science education because there's no reason why, even if you're a materialist or an atheist, there's no reason why you would want that to actually blind you to some of the basic historical facts about the, the origins of science. And so, you know, I feel like in many ways it's sort of a lost opportunity because this series could have been a wonderful opportunity simply to tell mm-hmm. the story straight, simply to focus on the evidence that we have and to admit the things that we don't know. But instead we've got essentially a catechism for materialism. All right. Yeah, definitely a, a missed opportunity. Um, I just got a question submitted as well. Um, what are what can we do to motivate our our children to be excited about science again? Well, honestly, I mean, I I have my kids watching, and I, I joke I've got two daughters, eleven and fifteen, uh, and they mm-hmm. watch it and I actually really like this. But I, you know, my kids unfortunately have probably been 
you know, overexposed to all these controversies about science and intelligent design. <laughs> well, so they're why. acutely aware of what's going on. And, you know, they get sort of skeptical when, you know, you get to the Darwinian storytelling where you see the creatures coming up out of the ocean and everything. You know, they, they, they start to get skeptical, but <laughs> quite understandably. <laughs> they also really like it, you know. I mean, uh, the episodes especially that deal with space, that dealt with supernova and the formation of stars, that stuff's cool. And I would hate for kids to, you know, have that squelched because of the materialistic ideology that you get in this series. So I would just encourage parents that are interested in these things, watch it with your kids. Help them to get excited. Affirm the good stuff where they're dealing with the solid science Mm -hmm. based on stuff we actually have discovered. But just help them to critique it where it needs to be critiqued. Because my view has always been that when we're educating our kids, what we don't want to do is quarantine them. You know, there's a temptation that you're going to try to protect them from exposure to any bad idea. Well, that's a a losing strategy long term because the kids are going to get off Mm -hmm. to college. Or, honestly, they're going to get on the Internet when they're six years old and they're going to get exposed. And then they get overexposed. And so what you want to do is you want to inoculate them, just like you'd be inoculated, you know, with a vaccine. What a vaccine does is it exposes you to a sort of modest, moderate form of the toxin so that your immune system can build up a resistance. And that's what you want to do with these ideas. You want to expose mm-hmm. them, but expose them in a controlled environment where you're sitting there next to them and you're, you're reflecting on these things. And honestly, if you feel like, well, I don't know that I can handle all the kind of scientific minutia, well, at the end of every episode, wait a couple of days and go to Evolution News, and I promise you there will be one or two or three articles analyzing that most article recent episode. That can help get right. Yeah, you know, um, just a couple of thoughts on that. I'm, I'm a new parent. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, um, you know, we, not only with, with the science and the apologetics and these sort of things, but just with life in general, yeah, this Christian bubble, it just it doesn't work. It won't work. You know, we know that from no. doing ministry um, with the poly, with the rest of Christie on campuses. It, it doesn't work, parents. <laughs> and so, um, you know, with, with ministry, we take our daughter with us to the meetings with atheists. We take her to mm-hmm. um, all types of events. We take her to the abortion clinic with her, with us when we do pro-life ministry. And the, the, the thought, the idea is to have your children there with you when these ideas come at them, because then they have a filter to help them to uh, to really decipher it, you know, but also to think through it for themselves as well. So Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, we really yeah. got to do that, and we shouldn't, you know, it, it doesn't help our kids if they they we appear to be scared to them. If they think, mm-hmm. okay, my parents are sort of afraid of the world, then they get off to college mm-hmm. and they hear arguments and ideas they haven't heard. I mean, just think what that does right. to a child. They say, okay, well, these are the ideas that my parents didn't want me to know about. You don't want to be in the mm-hmm. position where your kids think, okay, you have squelched sort of intellectual exploration. No, do it with them. Discover okay. these things. And if wow. something, you know, you say, you know, I don't know what to say about this multiple universe stuff, get online, go to reliable sources and learn read it. about it. Yeah. And, and dis- yeah, learn it with them because I promise you that's, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's I, I say, you can't guarantee how it's going to turn out, obviously, with your kids. We're all working just to improve the probabilities. Right. And so do everything you can yeah. to improve the probabilities by inoculating them. Right, but just just the attempt though to really um, take their their questions and their their thinking and their education seriously that goes a long way. Um, 
uh, I was, you know, earlier with the first segment, I was talking about some of our encounters on campus with students and their mm-hmm. questions, when their questions were asked to their parents and they were disregarded, it really hurt them more than anything. So not only was there the, are there these intellectual barriers, but there's, there are these emotional barriers. So, Absolutely. You know, just, like, I mean, just acknowledging the question and going and digging means a lot. Yeah. I've got a I've got an uncle who's a very smart guy and he's you know he's a retired philosophy professor but as a kid he had perplexing questions the kind of questions you might get from watching you know Sagan's Cosmos series and he would ask his youth pastor or his pastor and they would chastise him for asking those kind of questions mm-hmm. as if it was impious mm-hmm. to do that well we never want to, that to be our response we want to say well either if you know sure. give them a, a, a good answer or if you don't know say you know i don't know but let's go find that out and be thankful Absolutely. that we live at a time where if you've got a computer and an internet connection you can mm-hmm. get more information on almost any subject you know i used, right. to, I used to drive myself crazy as a little kid we didn't have the internet and i was curious about something and there's no way to, <laughs> to find the answer you know we were way right. past that and so um, yeah, you're not going to be able to protect your kids from exposure to ideas, but you can, if you do it right, you can inoculate them so that they will will deal with ideas critically and and with integrity. Absolutely, and we're in set, we're in this ap- apologetics age now. You know, there there are yeah. all these apologetic ministries that are just shooting up out of the ground all the time, all around us. Um, not only just the big, well-known ministries, but there there are mm-hmm. uh, grassroots apologetics movements going on everywhere. Um, conferences. Um, mm-hmm. Books. I mean, of course, I've, I've spent so much money on on the books that I know <laughs> <laughs> that there is a there's just a plenty of of resources out there now. So we definitely need to, to take advantage of that. Um, there, there's you know not not an excuse not to. Absolutely, and in fact, I think in some ways, you know, apologetics is sort of a growth industry, and I think part of the reason is because, you know, I remember hearing a, a Billy Graham talk. This has been about ten or fifteen mm-hmm. years ago now, but he talked about how when he first started doing his evangelism crusades, you know, he did these citywide crusades in the 40s and 50s, and all he had to do was tell people that they were sinners and that God would forgive them if they would repent. And that's pretty much all he had to say and give them an opportunity, and people would come up for the altar call, and they would they would pray for forgiveness. But he said you got to the 1980s, 1990s, that didn't work because the kind of back, background Christianity had dropped out of the culture so that many people, you couldn't just say, well, you know, you're a sinner, but God forgives you because people would say, what's sin? I mean, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And we're now in a time where people just they simply don't have even the basic categories to think about nature as a, a derivative reality if we're taught that well nature is the thing that always is it's the the fundamental reality mm. uh we got to get people to think okay you know if the universe had a beginning it can't be the fundamental reality and what could have had the capacity to bring it about and those are the kinds of things mm-hmm. you know you got to work your way back so that we're in many cases very often doing pre-evangelism where we're just kind right. of tilling tilling the intellectual and the spiritual soil and so that's why i think honestly we're in an age in which just just plain evangelism right right at the beginning often it simply falls mm-hmm. on on hard soil and that makes apologetics absolutely essential absolutely um you're right i mean the the culture has definitely it's it's not where you can uh just walk up to someone and start talking christianese and people understand you anymore <laughs> though you'll get a, no. a very funny look very quickly um and again we 
we had um, an event at our, the campus where we do apologetics ministry with Rasha Christie at Winthrop University um, here in uh, outside mm-hmm. of Charlotte, and we had a wonderful event on Tuesday. Had Science Buried God, and had a, a great speaker from Isaac to come in. And again, you it was just layered. Yeah, we could just see the scales kind of falling off some of the students' eyes. You know, it was you know a little bit at a time. You know, they were listening and it was getting through. But we know that we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, but you're you're so right in that um, they've been so programmed. And it's not just okay. Repent, believe. You know that can that does happen sometimes. Um, sure. But there's there's a lot of other layers and barriers that have built up over time that we do we need we, that we need not ignore. You know. I think that's right, and I think in many ways, you know, there's sort of I would say there's two key intellectual obstacles to Christian faith. One is just this pervasive relativism that, in fact, you know, nothing nothing's necessarily true, or that incompatible ideas can be both be true, but then also this materialism like we're getting in Cosmos, which, you know, it's a massive intellectual impediment. And I know from experience, for instance, when I wrote The Privileged Planet with Guillermo Gonzalez, and then a documentary was made the same year, and it's now been translated into, you know, I don't know how many different languages, and on a DVD it can go almost anywhere. And I get emails from people, you know, far away. I remember mm-hmm. one student that was at university in Nigeria, you know, he found his wow. way all the way to another continent, wrote me and said he uh, saw this documentary, The Privileged Planet, which doesn't talk about intelligent design. It says nothing about God. It does, certainly doesn't talk anything about the Christian gospel. And yet he, he watched this film, and he almost he immediately became a Christian. And I thought, well, now how's right. that, you know? Well, the reason <laughs> it happened is that clearly he had heard, the, you know, he kind of knew the content of the Christian faith, but the materialistic ideology had blocked it so that he wasn't able to get there. But once the materialism had been, you know, sort of dismantled, he's able to get the rest of the mm-hmm. way there. And so I think that's, mm-hmm. that's important because sometimes people will say, well, these intelligent Zion arguments, they don't, you know, get you all the way to the gospel. Well, that's true. I mean, if you're talking about evidence yeah. from astronomy and biology, you're not going to learn about mm-hmm. Jesus being raised from the dead from that, you know. Right. And so don't mm-hmm. don't expect that evidence to get you everywhere. But if you can get – if right. it's even so good as to suggest strongly that there's evidence for purpose and it is a strong critique of materialism, you're getting a heck of a lot of the way there, and we're a lot better off oh, yeah. than you are when that, that hasn't been challenged. Oh, yeah, we um, – we have a good relationship on campus with the Freethinkers, um, with that club, mm-hmm. and there's a young lady in there, and we've been meeting with her and talking with her, and she's been actually reading through. Um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, so she's she's working her way through it. And you know, we're telling it, you know, it's a comprehensive case, you know. Um, so she got three chapters in, and she's like, "Well, I'm not an atheist anymore, definitely." So <laughs> she's she's a theist at this point. <laughs> so that's only yeah. three chapters in. So, but then there's exactly. the case for Christ and the Bible and the New Testament and the resurrection. Those are to come, um, but you know those barriers are gone. You know that were there previously. So it yeah. makes you that much and more open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. I mean, theism isn't all the way to Christianity, but it's a heck of a lot closer to Christianity than materialism <laughs> hey, is. And so, you know, let's yeah. be thankful. Don't expect that, you know, one argument or one piece of evidence is going to somehow do everything. In fact, I don't think that's how God right. set up the world. I think he's created a universe mm-hmm. in which if we look at it openly and honestly, we can get to something like theism, that there's a transcendent creator. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, as you know, you need to get the, to the historical evidence to talk about, you know, what right. God did in Christ and the historical reliability of Scripture. That's historical. And so just uh, yeah, use these intelligent design arguments. Don't try to overuse them and try to make them prove more than they can, but don't expect that they're going to do more than they can. And just you know, view them as, as one tool in the toolkit. Right. Yeah, you know, it's kind of this idea that evangelism is supposed to be easy, you know, this kind of one-stop shop, <laughs> you know, lay yeah. lay some, some uh, arguments down and you're done, you know. But, uh, no, it's, you know, my experience with evangelism has been a, a tough battle, you know, and it's, yeah. it's diverse. You know, there's a lot of layers like we, like we determined earlier that have to be worked through. So, um, again, I think that's where God works, you know, and that, you know, in the conscience and those sort of things, so. Well, you know, and I issues. think it's it's why, you know, in many ways it's I'm sort of frustrated by the Cosmos series, but I'm treating it as an opportunity to talk mm-hmm. about these subjects because there's so many just fascinating things, even, you know, if you're talking about the history of science or you're just talking about the amazing, you know, discoveries of the 20 and 21st century from fine-tuning to the origin of life and the origin of the universe that I would say are They're God-friendly. Yeah, you're not going to deductively prove the existence of God from these things, but they very strongly suggest there's something wrong with materialism and and very strongly suggest something like purpose or intelligent design. And so the series, insofar as it gets people talking about these big questions, you know, I think uh, as long Mm -hmm. as we will see it that way, this can actually be an opportunity for us. Absolutely, absolutely. If we take advantage of it, all these opportunities that God, you know, all this, these conversations are going on, and God's given us all these opportunities. We just have to, you know, be willing to jump in and into it and uh, into the battle and such. Um, there was a question here um, submitted uh, mm-hmm. for you, Dr. Richards. Where do we see the future of the intelligent design movement, and what are the inroads that have been made so far? Absolutely. Well, I mean, if, even if you think of probably, you know, the in the 90s, the, the most famous book on intelligent design was was Mike Behe's Darwin's Black Box. I mean, he's the one that, mm-hmm. you know, made famous the bacterial flagellum and all these various molecular machines that he argued are, are irreducibly complex. In other words, they need the structure to be put together all at, at once in order for it to have a function that provides a survival advantage for the organism. So they're sort of inaccessible mm-hmm. to the Darwinian mechanism on the one hand and on the other hand they look very much they're just the kinds of things that an intelligent agent could produce well of course scientists have been attacking that now for almost 20 years and yet his basic argument has stood the test of time and if if the argument were bad it would have collapsed because it's had a heck of a lot of attention uh, cast on it and so that's where things have started but that's certainly not the only thing and so if you you, know, you look at, I think of the different sort of loci, the different locations within nature in which the, the evidence for intelligent design just screams. And the first is in the origin mm-hmm. of the universe. So, you know, the sort of fine-tuning of the laws of physics and the constants. Um, and, and we talk about that in the book Privileged Planet. And then the origin of, um, of you know, planetary systems and this amazing coincidence mm-hmm. that those places where uh, that are most habitable are also the best places for doing science that we talk about in the privileged planet. Steve Meyer's signature in the cell focuses on the origin of life, and his new book, mm-hmm. Darwin's Doubt, talks about the the development of life and the limits to, of the Darwinian mechanism to account for that. But in mm-hmm. some coming years, I'll just, uh, to whet people's appetite, I'll say there's amazing research coming out in some books that I know of, be released, I think, probably in the next year, 
that are going to show that when we're talking about these amazing information processing systems, you know, like the the, the coding systems that you have inside the nuclei of cells that Steve Meyer talks about in Signature in the Cell, we're just dealing at the sort of the very, very tip of the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in biology. And, in fact, there are orders Mm -hmm. of information far beyond what we see in the one-dimensional string of of DNA or even in proteins and these there's all this stuff it's often called epigenetics but it's it that just means outside the genome outside the genes sources of information mm-hmm. outside these traditional sources that we've been focused on this whole time that I think are going to blow the debate wide open because we've really yeah. as exciting as those you know sort of ground floor arguments about genetic information are they're just a tiny tiny mm-hmm. part of the picture and I think it's going to get yeah. much more difficult to sustain a materialistic explanation of these things in the years to come. That's really, really exciting. Um, I know you mentioned uh, Michael Behe. He's going to be at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics this year, um, where oh, you terrific. were last year. And I'm so excited. I know I've I've not gotten to listen to him speak live um, before, so I'm really, really excited uh, to hear him and to uh, get some, some knowledge in, from him. Yeah, and you know his book, um, The Edge of Evolution, which is his second book. I think it came out in 2007. Is in many ways as important as Darwin's Black Box. But you know Darwin's mm-hmm. Black Box came out, and the the Darwinists on the other side tried to, you know, they attacked it, and so it got all these prominent reviews in the New York Times and all these places. And so when Edge of Evolution came out, they thought, okay, let's not do that. Let's not draw attention. Let's let's ignore this one. And, in fact, he's, I think, shown mathematically <laughs> that the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection and random genetic mutations we know empirically has very, very strict limits and just simply doesn't have the capacity that's attributed to it. Uh, you know, by the Darwinian crowd. Yeah, it can explain some things, but uh, it's very, very limited, and very quickly it just it hits a brick wall. Right. Well, yeah, I definitely hope that he'll be discussing uh, that work at the conference, and um, people can go to conference.scs.edu to find out more information about registering for the conference. Early registration is open now. Um, Dr. Richards, any closing thoughts um, that you'd like to share with us um, in general or about the the mini-series or just anything on your mind or heart? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I would just, honestly, I encourage people to watch this. And I was, people might think I was glad to hear that the the ratings were were not great, but I, you know, honestly, I'm disappointed because I, I often will mm-hmm. find myself sort of frustrated, say, when I'm watching PBS, that I say, oh, this is kind of left wing or it's uh, materialistic, but it's often the very best thing on TV. And considering what else is on TV, I honestly wish that people were interested in these cosmic questions and uh, that the series would be watched. And so I think for all of us, if you're not watching it, you can watch the back episodes actually on the, the Cosmos website. And if you pick it up here on Sunday and watch the rest. So we're about halfway through, but we're going to do it mm-hmm. every Sunday night or Monday night on TV, or you can just go to the website. Right. And especially if you have kids or even, you know, if you just mm-hmm. have friends that are interested in these questions, interested in apologetics issues, uh, mm-hmm. invite people over to watch it. You, you don't have to have all the answers. You can just, just be a staging ground for getting the conversation going. Because honestly, mm-hmm. I mean, the great thing about this, the series is called Cosmos. It's about 
the universe as a whole. And so it just it sort of uh, it begs for a, a broader uh, treatment and really for a theological discussion. And that's why mm-hmm. I think that's why the series has gotten so much attention in the national press is precisely because people know, okay, this it's called cosmos. It has cosmic significance. Right. And I think you know let's critique it. Uh, praise it where it's good, but use this as an opportunity to talk about about life's big questions because that, that's what we should be interested in. Absolutely, um, Dr. Uh, Richards. We actually did have a caller who who called in. Let me see if our lines are working here. Caller, are you there? Hey. Hi. How are you? Yes, you yeah, are. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, where are you calling yeah. from? I'm calling from UK. Okay, and go ahead with your question for Dr. Richards. So my question for Dr. Richards is, do you think the material stranglehold in modern academia will be eventually overthrown, or do you think the evidence will ultimately triumph, or do you think there's a there's a, a deeper, um, more spiritual dimension in the debate that takes place? Well, so will you repeat his question, because it was so quiet I could just barely um, make it out. Yeah, the question was regarding materialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can, can you say it one more time a little slower? Sure. Sorry. Uh, so do you think the materialist stranglehold of modern science will ultimately be overthrown? Do you think that the evidence will okay. triumph, or do you think there's a, there's oh. a deeper yeah. Yeah, that was a li- I, it was a little louder that time. So, there, you know, I think that the color, the, the, exactly the way he describes it is a, a sort of materialistic mm-hmm. stranglehold on science because, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, science did not have its origins in the materialist worldview. Uh, it's gotten attached to that and is in some ways materialist worldview has become a parasite on science. But my view is the evidence will out. The truth ultimately wins in these disputes. And uh, materialism is at odds with reality. And so I I don't think it can hold on forever. I think that the evidence of nature itself is going to finally overwhelm this. And I mean, certainly, you know, as Paul says in Romans 1, uh, human beings, because of sin, tend not to, to, you know, recognize the reality of a creator. At the same time, God's creation, I think, uh, glorifies God and it, it testifies to its existence. And I, I think the evidence for design is is so overwhelming and will continue to become so overwhelming that it will ultimately, uh, I think that the evidence itself is going to win out over the materialistic worldview at some point. Great. Great question. Thank you so much for calling in today. Thank you. Well, great. That was a that was a great um, question to end the broadcast with. That was encouraging. Yeah. Um, Definitely. <laughs> you know, in a world where we feel you know Christianity is is under attack, um, you know, we are making uh, strides, and you know, we momentum is growing, and the, the Christians are starting to think, and uh, it's great to see that happening in the world of academia. And we're thankful for men like you, Dr. Richards, and uh, all the um, all the the brilliant thinkers up at the center or at the Discovery Institute. And for all that you're doing and um, for the great material that you're equipping those of us uh, who uh, don't have that the, the knowledge that you all have it but we're thankful that you all are equipping us with these tools and resources so that we can learn it and that we can make it available to others and to, to teach others as well well thanks so much and keep up the good work thanks for for all you're doing down there in north carolina and thanks for having me on well, thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule. I know that you have a lot going on all the time. <laughs> and um, oh, let me yeah. ask you this. Do you have any, any books or anything that you're working on momentarily? 
Um, yeah, in fact, I've got, you know, as I, do, as I mentioned, I do stuff on economics and on science, and I've got a book coming mm-hmm. out in September called The Hobbit Party with my friend Jonathan Witt. It's about uh, right. J.R. Tolkien, his, his uh, political and economic and theological vision. So, you know, it, a lot of people are interested in Tolkien, so the book called The Hobbit Party is going to come out uh, oh. right before the third, ep- uh, th- third uh, episode of the, the Hobbit comes out in theaters. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So I will definitely be looking out for that, and we'll share that with our listeners as well, Dr. Richards. Again, we thank you so much for your time and for being here with us, and uh, we will continue to follow you and your work, and we look forward to seeing you again whenever you're back in the Carolinas. Well, thanks so much. God bless. God bless you as well, Dr. Richards. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, you have been listening to Theology Matters with the Palouse, another wonderful episode. I hope that you came away with some wonderful information that you can use as you watch uh, this um, miniseries, Cosmos, with your family and with your friends. Uh, uh, Dr. Richards mentioned this is a great opportunity for us to open our homes and to have a dialogue about these very, very important issues. Everyone has an opinion on origins. Um, so this is a great way to start the dialogue and um, even in discussion. So let's take advantage of all the opportunities that we have before us. And, again, we um, thank you so much for being with us. Devin will be back next week. Um, We will, um, Lord willing, have our technical issues resolved, and we will both be with you, and we'll have another wonderful show with you. And we um, thank you for your time and for being with us and hope that you have a wonderful resurrection weekend as we celebrate um, the resurrection of our Lord. He is indeed risen. God bless you all, and have a wonderful evening. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole speech. Caller, let me help you. My landlord won't fix my washing machine. Go to AT&T. Huh? When you have AT&T Wireless and DirecTV, you can get unlimited data. Then you can enjoy your favorite DirecTV shows on your phone while you're at the laundromat. Sweet. (laughs) Sweet indeed. AT&T, mobilizing your world. Must have eligible TV service. If you're not eligible, AT&T will move you to a new plan and overage charges may apply. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may reduce speeds. TV content varies by device location and package. Monthly and other charges usage and other restrictions apply. See store for plan details. 